Hey basketball fans, Alexander J here. Uh, you might notice the last week and a half or so, no daily episodes. That's going to continue for probably another week or so. Um, I've taken on a new engagement in the sporting realm. And just while we figure that one out, there's no time to spend two hours every afternoon going through the basketball highlights I've missed and putting together a show. Um, so just for this week and probably next week as well, I'm going to tack on a hour-long podcast I host with the Mojo Sports Network, guys. Uh, it's basically a weekly recap. We try not to cover anything that you know, the mainstream media will cover, other than me calling the new Clippers jersey shithouse. Uh, but stick around. It's a fun discussion. It always is. Again, I do this one over at Mojo Sports Network, mostly Australian guys. We do a whole bunch of other sports, uh, AFL, NRL, all of that starting up again soon. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. Um, I, and I appreciate your patience. I've gotten a couple messages on social. The daily shows can return in about a week as we wrap up, amp up to the end of the season. It's what I love doing. I love watching basketball. Um, one of the benefits of not having the two hours of time every afternoon to do this is I am writing a little bit more. Uh, if you're not familiar with me, I started as a sports writer. I've got a, uh, I just love doing it. I'm writing over on the Inner Sanctum. It's an independent Australian newsletter. I'll put a link into uh, one of my latest stories about Jordan Poole's loss of confidence after getting punched in the head. I'm working on a couple stories with some historical comparisons with maybe some real changes that will happen in the off-season. But that's enough for me. Uh, here's today's show I had with Mojo. I hope you enjoy and I hope I see you again very, very shortly. I appreciate your patience. Love you guys. Uh, follow your passion. It's leading me to some pretty great things. Bye. Just for now. Welcome back to the NBA Recap Show here on the Mojo Sports Network. As always, I am your host, Alexander J. With me is Mr. Tom Dev, Yuri Bilsic, and back from stateside, Julian Balthazar. Hello, everyone. Julian, we're going to start straight from you because I know you've just gotten back to Australia, seen some NBA games, talk to us. What'd you see? What'd you see on the ground? Got any insights for us? Floor is yours, man. I'm so excited anytime anyone gets to go to an NBA game. Start us off. Yeah, it's good to be back. Hey guys, hope you're all well. It's um, a very surreal experience going to the NBA. I have been before, but this is the first time that I traveled on my own. And it definitely hit different for a couple of reasons. Now, the first one is, funnily enough, I was very silly in my plan and I actually assumed that I had three hours to get to the game. My flight landed from um, Melbourne to LA at 6.15pm and I had to get to the 7.30pm game um, for Lakers Pistons. And somehow... My baggage came pretty much first. I jumped in the Uber, bought my tickets on the way there, jumped into uh, Staples Center and, and caught a game from pretty much the ground level, which is fantastic. Um, and then the next day I flew to San Fran. Um, I actually already had a flight booked and the exact same problem. I had a flight landing at six with a game starting at seven and somehow made it on time. So the, the stars are aligning for me with my luggage. But um, I remember Tom said something about seeing Jason Tatum in person. I didn't see Tatum. I saw Steph Curry. James Harden, Paul George, I saw LeBron James, Anthony Davis. And yeah, it, it is a very surreal experience when you go from watching it on your mobile phone or your laptop to actually seeing them meters away from you. It's really, really strange and unique. And the last time I went to America, I didn't sit as close as I went this time. I had to pay for some pretty pricey seats, but it was completely worth it for the games I got. They weren't blowouts and, you know, the Warriors Clippers game went down to the final few seconds. Um, but yeah, it's it's just incredible watching it. I, I feel like we have so many good things going on for in Australia, but if there was one case for me to move to the US, it would be to watch the NBA. I would probably go every night if I could. It was that amazing. Um, and it's just really weird to watch the players that you admire and talk about all day long, just right in front of you. That's pretty much the only way I can describe it. It's indescribable, really. Was it just the two games? Just the two games I went to. Um, ironically, they had the All-Star break after that, so I didn't want to make the trip out to Indiana on a six-hour flight after <laughs> a few flights already, but um, it's lucky I missed that because it wasn't the best All-Star break in my opinion so no i watched that they showed a lot of games on tv there and they showed the all they showed the all-star break on tnt so i watched those from the hotel room and from bars and stuff around the place so now it's really really cool and there's a huge nba culture especially in la um and it's just great to talk about nba fans with the people who go to the games themselves every night well we're super glad to have you back uh, on today's show we're going to talk about some of the stuff that's popped up in the last week and a half most teams have got under 30 games left in the regular season as we push towards What's going to be a bloodbath in the West in the playoffs? East, still kind of wide open outside of Tom Celtics. Um, Tom, how are you this week? Uh, what do you want to talk about? What's going on in the world of Tom? 
Um, oh, not, not too much. I, I did have a little bit of uh, dental work done this afternoon. So uh, now it's not too bad. But if I uh, start drooling a bit, it's not over the Celtics nine win, uh, win streak. It's, it's just, just the dental procedure. <laughs> the dental game for Tom coming today. And Yuri, man, what's going on with you? Yeah, great to be back on, Alex. And as you perfectly described as well, both the East and Western conferences and especially in the West where it's been a real juggling act for this whole entire season with spots flipping from fifth down to eighth and the Lakers and Golden State making their runs and could still well possibly get to the seventh or eighth seed barring if results go their way. So it's really fascinating though. It's just, I think we've spoken about this on numerous occasions with the Western Conference and the win-loss ledgers, right? Even when we previewed some of the teams in the lead-up to the season, Alex, when we are talking about the Pelicans, for example, them, if they can win 46 to 48 games, they'll make a play a playoff spot. And the way they're going, why they're now 35 and 24, they beat the Knicks today, they're well on track to get close to winning 50 games if they go, what, 17 and 8 or so and 16 and 8 in their final 24 games. So it's really a fascinating point and just so much to really play out too. And I think today we saw a lot as well. Some of the teams that really buckled down the defensive end. I think I think nine of the 10, 11 games, at least one of the sides was held under 100 points. So it's been a long time since that occurred. All right. One of the perks of being host of the show is I get to decide what comes off in the A block and I am hijacking it to just check in with you all. Have we all seen the new Los Angeles Clippers logo? I'm starting the show with that because this got released uh, yesterday, Zach Lowe by ESPN. Um, I don't know if Jules has seen it, but I've popped it into the dock in the last moment. They've redesigned the logo and got away with the LAC uh, in a circular ball. It's it's dog shit. <laughs> I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> this is an awful rebrand. Uh, for those listening at home, it basically looks like a cruise liner inside of a sea. They're going back to their Clippers, um, the, the roots of the San Diego Clippers. Clippers meaning some old regal boat. Uh, anyone want to give some instant reacts on this Clippers logo before we move on to something, anything more positive? I think probably just to go back to their roots and reestablish their identity, that's fine as it is. I like the jumpers, though. The Guernseys jumpers are, really are fine. Cool. Jumpers and, are fine. And the, I think the font is, has something very reminiscent to the late 1990s, early 2000s Clippers teams, if I'm not mistaken, too. And the colors, especially... The ones that they had in, I think it was the 2014 or 2015-16 <laughs> season with their Clash Guernsey, so the alternate strip, shall I say, they're all red. So those are coming back next season. The navy blue, if you want to call it that way, that's a nice colour. And the white, of course, for their home strip. I think, of course, they wanted to bring that to their new stadium next season as well in Inglewood, in what, Inuit Dome, I think it's called. So... I think it all aligns really well and I really have no problem with it as well because they've been for so long, right, being the little brother of the LA Lakers and them going away and basically forming their own identity as it is. And I think it's a really good start and I think it was something that was probably in the pipeline and in the works for quite some time. Tom, do you have any thoughts or do you just want to move on to anything else in the league this week? Oh, look, I'll applaud them for having the courage of putting James Harden as a, as a poster boy. Who knows? Is he actually going to be there next year? You'd think so, but you never know with Harden. It's a brave decision. You're right. Uh, all right, move us into some Trey Young news. Yeah, well, you know, it came out uh, the other day that after he sustained that sort of hand finger injury, uh, that he's going to be out for four weeks. Um, and, you know, I'm not one to talk much about the Hawks considering how literally average they have been. I think over their last, like, 200 games, they're literally 150 and 150 or something. Um, but honestly, the ramifications this injury has for them now, I mean, the Bulls are only one win above them in the nine spot, I believe. And then the Nets are only four wins below them in the 10 spot. And I mean, they play the Nets twice on uh, Friday and Sunday. So that could be really pivotal for both the Nets and the Hawks. Um, they've got a really tough schedule coming up. They play literally all the contenders at least once more. Um, ultimately, you know, they're not going to win a championship even with Trey Young. So it doesn't really matter. However... This is the perfect chance for the Hawks to assess whether they should be going with Trey Young or DeJounte Murray going forward because the rumor is they wanted to trade one of them. Um, and you sort of look at the stats, you know, Murray without Trey uh, so far since he's been traded to Atlanta, he's had 14 games, averaged 25.1 points per game, 8.8 assists per game, 5.8 rebounds per game, you know, shooting 45.5% from the field. 
you know, this year he's even had a few game winners where he's sort of taken the ball in the clutch. Um, obviously, he's a better defender than Trey, not that that's setting a bar that high. Uh, but, you know, Kevin O'Connor and Bill Simmons from the ringer made a really great point just before the trade deadline, saying that this could sort of be like the Kings Halliburton trade, where you sort of trade the better player. You know, they traded Halliburton instead of Fox. Maybe the Hawks should trade Young instead of Murray because you can get more in the trade and you can sort of build around the player and build a better team. But look, I I, I didn't think I'd be tuning into any Brooklyn or Atlanta games uh, ever again this season, but Friday and and Sunday, I think it was. Yeah, Friday and Sunday, I I think I might watch them because they're basically play-in games for a play-in spot. Excellent, excellent point. Before I hand over the reins to Jules and then Yuri, um, Brooklyn, four games behind Atlanta, played twice this weekend. They have the third easiest strength of schedule remaining for the season too. So just something to keep an eye on. I completely agree with everything you said. Jules, what you got? Uh, it, I saw a news report today came out that said that uh, Joel Embiid, they're, they're optimistically predicting that he might be coming back before the postseason. So potentially late March. I don't know how that's possible. He had surgery on his knee on the 6th of February. I don't know how it's tracking, but he'll need to return to practice first before doing some match simulation and then returning, you know, to his full 36 plus minutes. So um, it's an interesting one, but they need to get him out there because without him, they are 7 and 17. Uh, and with him, they are 26 and 8, which kind of, leads a bit of i don't know it's it's it kind of supports my argument that Embiid probably should have been considered for the mvp if he was healthy i always talked about how he makes the team a lot better and their record with him is super solid because if you remove some of the superstars in contention for the mvp from some of the other teams their records are still quite similar surprisingly so i think they're just really struggling without him and with that tobias harris is on one of the worst slumps in his career at the moment i don't know exactly what he's doing i watched the game today against the celtics he had two offensive rebounds. He just couldn't get his hands on the ball defensively. And his scoring ability, he's taking less field goals. He's not making attempts. He's looking flat. And I think today Nick Nurse just didn't even play him in the last few minutes. So I don't know exactly what's happening with him. But in his 13th season, we've talked about him on this podcast before. He needs to do a lot more. They can't just shoulder all the responsibility onto Maxi. But Maxi actually came out and said that a lot of it is on him. And he sort of says he needs to put Harris in better positions. And they're trying to lift up you know each other and his teammates but really like harris we've talked about this before <laughs> he really just needs to do better to be honest um and the Sixers, i think in the last 10 games or so i think oh the last 11 games i think they're four and seven and they're sliding down the table um who knows if they're going to lose a home playoff spot with the way they're going the Sixers currently in sixth they are a half a game above the bulls in ninth in the east so that slide uh, excuse me uh, half a game above the Indiana Pacers in eighth, so the Bulls are like five games out of that. Uh, Yuri, anything on Atlanta or the Sixers before you bring in your news of the week? Yeah, I'd love to touch on the Hawks side because the last two games against the Orlando Magic, they held them to a pretty sure it was a season low 92 points. And today against the Utah Jazz, they held them to, I think, 99 by memory. So the first time right in goodness knows how many seasons for Atlanta. They've managed to hold two teams in consecutive games under 100 points. And this is a team going into the Jazz matchup that was giving up, I think it was the second worst record, the second worst amount of points, shall I say, 122 points per game, which is really just deplorable and despicable, right? Because I think going into the season, Quinn Snyder thought there will have been some significant defensive improvements, adjustments to his scheme, but... Unfortunately, that just hasn't really translated. And perhaps maybe these next two games, and we'll see now with the next month with Trey Young, of course, being out and undergoing that was a finger tendon surgery in New York because they've got that very crucial Western trip in mid-March, late March, where they play Utah. I think it's on March 15. They play the Phoenix Suns on March 21. I think the Lakers is part of that itinerary as well. So it's real no easy games on that Western trip. And that's where it really becomes of importance because they're only, I think, a game back of the Bulls who lost today to the Detroit Pistons, 105 to 95. And that four-game gap between them and Brooklyn. And to be honest, I don't see the Nets make up any ground whatsoever. Their offense is just completely discombobulated in the last month. We saw it today against Orlando. The Magic held them just 81 points. And Mikhail Bridges has been in a slump in the last 10 games, right? I think he's shooting under 45%. And he's... Field goal percentage from the start of this season to where it is now, I think it's about 44.5%, and that's really considerably dropped off. But just going back to Atlanta and sort of the adjustments that they've had to make on the fly too, Onyeka Kanwu, who's 
go and be out for the foreseeable future with that sprained toe, that's big enough in itself because he normally finishes games ahead of Clint Capella. Bruno Fernando's been a really good presence right around the paint as well to back up Clint Capella. DeAndre Hunter, since coming back from his injury, he's been basically their sixth man and providing really good production. Did as well today against the Utah Jazz. And I think the big part as well is how can they avoid getting into these ISOs one-on-one, Alex, without the ball moving side to side? Because that's been such a problem for the Hawks. When you watch their games, you watch even that game winner on January 17 when the when Murray hit that game winner, his second game winner over the Magic this season. And we Tom mentioned it too, where Quinn Snyder was calling for a timeout, right? He was on the sideline telling the ref, I want a timeout. And the ref didn't see him. And we saw that Trey Young wanted the ball. That didn't happen. DeJounte, of course, dribbles it up the court. One-on-one, Markel Fultz is on him. And he takes that pull-up jump shot. But when you look at other plays and what they can possibly run, Alex, is it more dribble handoffs that they can incorporate? Is it more sort of split actions to go with it. Because if it sort of keeps going down that route, it'll work fine against the worst teams, but not against elite defensive teams against Boston. And we saw that in the first round playoff series last season between the Celtics and the Hawks. So that's sort of the worry on that side as well. And of course, why Atlanta is, what, 25 and 32, Chicago's 27 and 31 record. And it's just basically what's really typified the Hawks this season. It's just ISO ball movement. And we... Even previewed this at the start of the season, Alex, where Atlanta, I think, were the worst, second worst in terms of pass rate. They only averaged something like 250 passes a game. All right, a couple other things from the week I wanted to touch base on. You guys can pull out anything of interest to you. My favorite news of the week is the former Oklahoma City Thunder guard. Alexei Pokashevsky has been picked up by Charlotte. If you're not feel, uh, familiar with Poku, he's seven foot something. String Bean has been buried on the deep bench OKC. They've got too much talent. Um, I love watching Poku play. I think he was a deep first round pick in 2022. I really should have researched that before I threw that out there. Um, He's just fun to watch, but he plays like Chet Holmgren if Chet was not good. And that's why I love watching him play. Um, Chris Paul's also due to return this week for the Golden State Warriors. They need some direction on the bench if they're going to make a deep playoff run. I'm really interested to see how they fold him back in as they're on a bit of a run. Um, I have those stats in front of me. Golden State in the last 10 games are eight and two. So, you know, he might come back in and play limited minutes. And then Detroit's Isaiah Livers is out for the season. Funny injury. He's got an inflamed joint capsule in his hip. Uh, Livers got traded from Washington in January. Hasn't played a game for Detroit. He's going to miss the whole rest of the season. Anyone want to touch on anything else news-wise before we move on? Yeah, I definitely think that Chris Paul return, Alex, and after missing the seven weeks after... Once more, what for the 12th time in his career, innocuously breaking his hand against the Detroit Pistons all the way back on January 5. And you did speak about his return. He returned today against the Washington Wizards. They're just a part of their four-game Eastern East Coast road trip, shall I say. And they played the Knicks in a couple of days' time. And the real interesting part is as well, because the Warriors have had so much success with the small ball by playing Draymond Green at the five and having Jonathan Kaminga play at power forward. And now Clay Thompson is growing accustomed to his new sixth man role. So it's a really interesting dynamic what they're going to do with that second unit with Paul and Thompson together and just the whole mix up of different lineups together and playing CP3 and Curry as they've done numerous occasions this season. It just got really clicking at the right time. And I think the big part as well is sort of the minutes, drastic minutes reduction for especially Kevon Looney. He's been the one that's been sort of sided out in a way in terms of playing a bigger part within the Golden State rotation. So that's something to just sort of keep an eye out a little bit further on, especially what happens, of course, if they do advance past the plane and say finish as the number eight seed and how much of a role does he play there, especially if they go up against, say, an OKC or Minnesota in the first round where the T-Wolves, of course, play that big lineup with Carl Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert. But just with so much with CP3 stability as well on the floor, it's just going to help so much and relieve Steph Curry of those ball handling duties as we've seen this season. And I think Steph's assist numbers this season, I'm pretty sure were a career low as well. He's averaging 5.1 assists, and whereas CP3 is leading the team with 7.2 prior to his injury. But they made pretty light work of the Washington Wizards after Washington were pretty competitive in the first half. So, no, it's a really interesting point as well with Golden State and 
how it all pans out. All right, moving on to our second segment, Julian. Today, coming back into the show, I know you wanted to bring the Orlando Magic to the group's discussion. Um, fourth youngest team in the league. I think that was the point you wanted to lead with. They were a team that kind of flourished a little bit at the start of the season. It's fallen back to seventh in the Eastern Conference. They're seven and three in their last 10, though, so still hanging around. Talk to us about the Magic. I wanted to bring them to the table to get your guys' thoughts on them. I watched them today against the Brooklyn Nets, as you already touched upon before, keeping them to 81. And what I saw was, a, and I'm not sure how they rank in the defensive ratings, but a team that played really good team defense, they doubled Mikhail Bridges and kept him to zero points at the half. I think he had four points or so for the game. And when I look at their lineup, I think, where are the stars really? Of course, they've got an all-star in Bancaro and, and Franz Wagner, I think, is a su- superb player Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Yeah, other than that, really. I mean, you go to Jalen Suggs, Gary Harris, Wendell Carter hasn't been playing consistent minutes, but somehow they managed to string wins, especially at home where they're 19 and 8 at home. And remember, Franz, Wendell missed a bit of time as well. So, um, yeah, fourth youngest team. And I, I just want to touch on the, the youngest teams. And, and, you know, you guys can listen to the team names and see how these guys are doing. These are some of the youngest teams. Spurs, Hornets, Blazers, Jazz. So, obviously, all at the bottom of the table. And then we have... OKC, which we know they're incredible. And then and then the Magic. And the Magic is seventh on the table compared to 13th last season. Bancaro has gone from averaging 3.7 assists to 5.2 assists this year. So he's obviously increasing his ball handling and potential assists per game. And as I said, Franz Wagner as well. I, I just love watching him. His ability to drive to the ring is very similar to Shai, uh, SGA from OKC, I feel like. He, he just gets... They're so good and he can just make layups from all over the spot. Um, they've beaten the Knicks twice. They've beaten the Timberwolves. They've beaten the Nuggets. They... Three and one against the Cavs, and they had that um, OT loss to the Kings, um, which was very close. Other than that, they have had a re- relatively easy fixture I've looked at. Um, but yeah, I guess that's why I want to touch base with you guys and see, you know, are they the real deal? Are, are they going to be a force to be reckoned with in the future? Do they need to sign some players, or can they make do with the good team culture they have, which feeds all the way through to their second team as well? Um, Ingles, um, Mo Wagner, um, Jonathan Isaac is playing good again. I think it's just a really fun team to watch with a good culture and i'd love to hear your thoughts fifth in the league in defensive rating that's the answer julian there you go go ahead yuri oh you're absolutely spot on for all those points julian and jonathan isaac's return right where he had that knee injury back in 2020 i think it was in the bubble when he was such a big defensive linchpin as part of steve clifford's team and what he's brought again since returning back from injury he's just he fits all the components and that's what jamal mosley's been seeking for since he took over as Orlando Magic coach was that defensive identity and they're not a big volume three-point shooting team. That's not in their category. They're more categories to attack the paint. And you see when Franz Wagner rebounds the ball and goes down in transition and gets that easy fast back layup, that's what they predicate themselves on. And that's what really centralizes so much of their offense for Orlando too. And I think it's just where they are is probably no real surprise one bit whatsoever when you have, what, a 33-26 record this season too. And after, what, winning 35 games and they had that, what, 5-20 and 20 start last season, which we talked about on many occasions. And I think the whole rebuild was going to take time anyway. And they had to make those rebuilds, right? Trading away Nikola Vucevic and getting Wendell Carter and getting back, what, two future first-round picks, which basically seems like an absolute goldmine right now for the Orlando Magic. And also trading away for Aaron Gordon to Denver and they just had to retool and restart again because they've got so much depth within and Mo Wagner even I think I can't remember which game as well he had too he had 25 points in one game it was just an mm. absolute presence right throughout and it's those options that they have right there and even the point guard spot is just so deep right and even now Cole Anthony coming off the bench and he was used to be the starter before and they've just got really clicking all together and, and it'll be nice to see them finish as the number six spot in the Eastern Conference and even if they win a playing game and finish as the num- number seven seed boy it's a big tick whatsoever down there in Orlando because when was the last time they had such real ingrained success? It was the late 2000s early 2010s in the Dwight Howard era under coach Stan Van Gundy where they basically just spaced the floor with shooters to accommodate Dwight's and it's a different sort of accommodation that they've got within this team because they're a lot bigger. They've got size and length and they're sort of, I don't know why, they're very f- sort of reminiscent to that Milwaukee Bucks team in 2014-15 under coach Jason Kidd in his first year there in Wisconsin where they basically had big 
lengthy athletic guys. Michael Carter-Williams, Chris Middleton, Giannis, of course. Zaza Pachulia was the center there at the time. So And Jabari Parker too. So it's sort of parallels in that side as well. And what they're doing is, again, it's no surprise one bit. And they've also been in New York Knicks as well this season. I think it was on Martin Luther King Day as well. Won those games which they won 98 to 94 too. And they also beat Utah as well. In I think it was part of their early West Coast trip there too. And I think they narrowly lost to the Lakers. But yeah, what they've been able to conjure this season is just, they're on the right track. Tommy boy, I'm waiting for you to jump in. Uh, I think all NBA GMs should sort of just have the number number two up in their office. And by that, I mean the magic number is two, as in draft picks you need to hit. If you hit two draft picks, suddenly your team goes into contention. Look, Go look at Philly. They hit one out of their, what, three top draft picks with Embiid? Simmons failed. Fultz failed. Look at... Uh, the Celtics, you know, they hit with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. They've now been in contention every year they've been there except for one. Um, you know, if you just get those two draft picks in, you get those young kids and you can suddenly build a winning culture from an early start. You know, you look at Detroit, they've really only hit on Cade Cunningham. And until they hit that second pick, I really don't see them actually going anywhere. With, you know, Bankero and Wagner in the Magic, Give it two years' time, and I think they'll probably be a top four seed. You know, they might take over that Philly spot if uh, Embiid keeps you know getting injured like he is. It's a really good point. Uh, they've got a couple of rookies they don't play much either. And Jet Howard, Anthony Black's come off the bench for thirty-one mm-hmm. games or something. But yeah, all right. Uh, on the other side of this break, Tom, we're going to talk about the Dallas Mavericks and how much is too much relying on one single player. We'll see you on the other side. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Uh, well, you know, welcome back from the break. That was a, that was a very good ESPN sort of first take get up style, uh, you know, leave us on a, on a cliffhanger note before we hit the break. But um, look, I think the Dallas Mavericks at the moment are probably one of the most interesting teams, especially since the deadline. You know, they've made a couple acquisitions, got rid of a couple of players and, you know, they did sort of go on a bit of a nice run, but then the last couple of games, you know, they got blown out against the Pacers and then today it, it was a tough loss. They lost to Max Strews on, on a crazy 59 foot, Game Second winner. longest game winner of all time. I don't know if you saw that stat, 59 feet. Inside Washington, puts it in. Two seconds left. The Cavs are out of timeouts. They have to go 94 feet. Struis from midcourt. Oh, do you believe this? Wow. It was in- insane. I mean, as a Celtics fan, I can tell you, he was basically making those shots in the Eastern Conference uh, finals last year. But... um. Look, you know, the Mavs overall, they're 33 and 25. They're currently the eight seed. They're three wins above the Warriors. They're two wins back of the Pelicans, the fifth seed, though. I mean, if you look at the West standings, it is clogged up all around. Um, but yeah, you know, the other day they lost the Pacers by 22 points. You'd think, oh, Luca must have had a shocking game. Uh, no, 33 points, six rebounds, six assists in 33 minutes. Oh, maybe Kyrie didn't chip in, didn't do his share. No, he had 29 points, six rebounds, two assists in 32 minutes. So, that's uh, you can't really ask for too much more from your star duo. And then today against the Cavs, Luca had forty-five points, nine rebounds, and fourteen assists in forty-one minutes. Meanwhile, Kyrie had thirty points, six rebounds, three assists in thirty-nine minutes. So, I mean, despite Kyrie's starting to sort of perform like that all-star that he once was on a consistent basis, I mean, I don't think we've really seen him do it on a consistent basis since twenty twenty, really. 
Um, you know, they're still just really heavily reliant on Luca. I mean, his highest, he has the highest usage rate in the league at 35.8%. You know, Giannis and SGA are at 32.7%. Curry's at 31.3%. Um, you know, they don't count and beat him the stat because he hasn't made, uh, played enough minutes. But before his injury, he was at 38.7%. Um, and, and look, I, my question to you guys is, can this type of basketball actually win a title? Because, you know, one injury can have such a big implication on seedings. I mean, you look at the 76ers, even if Embiid comes back, they're probably going to be a six or seven seed and have to do it the long way, which is going to hurt them. And also playing through one guy is just easier to stop in the playoffs. As we've seen historically, most teams at least need a second star uh, to perform at a high level to to win a title. So what do you guys think? Can it? Yes. Will it with Dallas? No. And the only reason I say that is this team is not elite at a single thing in the league other than putting up three-point attempts. They lead, actually, they're second in the league in three-point attempts, but 10% on percentage mates from three. Everything else about this team is middle of the pack. Um, I have faith in a lot of their guys. Like They got PJ Washington. Their rookie, Derek Lively, is great. But just this year, with the way the rest of the team and chemistry is, I don't care how good Luca is, dude. He's, can we call him the best white player of all time yet? Like, I know he hasn't won a title. He, uh, Nicole Jokic is still in the league, but he's in consideration. Larry Bird is a clear person. He's not a white person. Um, I don't see it this year. Yuri, Jules. Yeah, just again with the Western Conference and the whole competitiveness of it, it does make it really tough too. And I think, the other part to it as well with the Mavs, and as Tom mentioned too, with the acquisitions of PJ Washington and Daniel Gafford from the Charlotte Hornets and Washington Wizards respectively, at least does somewhat add a bit more of def- defensive interior in the way, maybe in terms, of, in terms of with Daniel Gafford and the rebound because Dallas have just been porous the last couple of seasons on the rebounding aspect. But the other part to it as well, since Maxi Kleber's return from the injury too, and he was out for at least a good two, three months, and I can't remember exactly what the injury was, but we even spoke about this too, Alex, in some of the Mavericks lineups and just how critical he is to their switching matchups. And he's such a switchable and adaptable defender too. He can guard from point guard to center. And I think this is a big part too as well. When they played it, I think, no, I think the season series against Minnesota is finished. But when they play some of those other teams in the Western Conference as well too, that some of the bigger lineups and, it's something that they do have at their disposal that they can go for if they want to. With Kleber, with Daniel Gafford together, with Kleber or Derek Lively Jr. together. I think it was something that the Dallas Mavericks ESPN reporter Tim McMahon even mentioned too on the Hoop Collective podcast with alongside Brian Windhorst and also with Tim Bontemps a couple of days ago too. So those matchups are there too. But I think defensively for the Mavs is where they just continuously get cooked and we saw against indiana on sunday night over there they gave up 133 points and again to the cavaliers they gave up 121 so it's still a real headache for the mavs if they really want to make any sort of leeway and indents into going as fast they want to get to where they were what a couple years ago when they made the conference finals for the first time in 11 years Damn, no one wanted to add to that. I was hoping we'd have a bit of chemistry after a year doing this together. Jules, any thoughts on Dallas? I, I don't want to add too much because the boys covered it all, but I've, I've actually been saying the same thing for years that they just cannot win. Exactly as you said, Alex, can it be done? Yes. Will it with Dallas? No. Uh, I, I don't really want to elaborate on that. I've been saying it for years. Huge Mark Cuban fan. I just think, unfortunately, it's just not going to happen for him with the current team. Yeah, and, it might and be his last note, year with Cuban, yeah. That's right. And side note, PJ Washington as well. I just... I, I don't want to talk about him, to be honest. Okay, we'll move on really quickly. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Um, last major segment for today's show. I don't know if you guys caught the news uh, early today that Joe Dumas, the former Piston and Hall of Famer, is the head of the NBA's competition committee, basically come out in two separate interviews aggregated by ESPN and said that they're evaluating if the league's lost the balance uh, of the offense versus defense and kind of admitting they've got a little bit of a problem with scoring, um, the explosion I've been looking into it today. I'm looking at putting together an article, looking at the history of rule changes in the league. You might find that one wherever I write my stuff later in the week. But I'm asking you guys, if we're going to change a rule in the NBA to fix this, what should it be? Now, I've put down the four-point line as a joke. Um, It's not going to happen, and it would not help the certain situation we found ourselves in. But there's a range of things the NBA could do. Like, for example, um, 
the defensive three second rule could be extended to five seconds. The implication then being that the interior big men for most teams can then remain in the league a little longer. They don't have to pop out opening up the league for the drives and everything we see at the moment. Uh, Tom, have you got an idea to kind of curb the scoring explosion or do you like it? Um, I wouldn't say I love the the scoring explosion to a sense, but also I just think offense uh, has just gotten so much better in recent years and, you know, Great defense will always get beaten by better offense. That's why we see some of these guys make incredible shots. You just got to watch Curry and, and Jokic and the likes. They just make crazy shots that you just can't stop no matter what rules are in place. So I sort of thought I'd take this rule somewhere else and sort of go off the court. Um, and I sort of said that we should start allowing kids to just come straight in a league out of high school and stop doing this whole mandatory, you got to have a one-year gap year sort of thing. Because, um, you know, look, the reality is college basketball, it's just losing interest. Um, every podcaster who's on NBA uh, at the moment is saying they're more interested in the women's tournament this year than the men's because the women's tournament is actually exciting. You know, Caitlin Clark is must watch basketball. Whereas I couldn't even tell you any of the men's college basketball players this year, really. I just haven't, not, not that I haven't even really been paying attention. I just don't think there's anyone that notable. Um, even last year, only two of the top seven kids in the draft were in a college. The rest were all international or in the G League. Um, and look, while it's good for some and, you know, they develop well, it, it also ends up wasting years for those players that could have easily been in the league, like Wemby and Luca. Plus, you look at all the, like, under 25 historical records, uh, like most wins under 25, most points under 25, most threes under 25, et cetera. Most of the leaders were the ones who didn't end up spending that year in college. So it just sort of makes those stats a little bit unfair. And also, like, if we're being honest, it just benefits the colleges. That's what it's there for. And if, if you want more inf- information on that, just there's a South Park episode where, you know, Cartman sort of makes fun of them for having the, the student athletes. And, and just go watch that on YouTube and you'll see just how rubbish the system is. Yuri, um, one of the things I found out today in my research, you might cast your mind back to the amazing Golden State Warriors in the 2016-17 season, the first year with Kevin Durant. So much offense that the death lineup got changed to the mega death lineup. They had a historic offensive rating. So the offensive rating basically breaks down how many points on average you score per 100 possessions. Uh, It was the biggest in 30 years back that season. That same rating this year would be 18th out of 30th. That's how much the scoring has crept up in six and a half seasons. So have you gotten an idea to curb this scoring explosion? Yeah, absolutely spot on, Alex. And there was a video I watched on that too where someone mentioned that from that 2016-17 season to now this season where you'd basically be ranked in the bottom 10 just because of how much the evolution of offenses has rapidly exploded in the last six, seven years. Well, my implementation I bring to the league to bring back more of an even and a fairer balance for both offense and defense is hand-checking once more. Back to the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, before they basically discarded it in the early 2000s, which I just think is a complete joke, right? And those ticky-tack fouls in playoff series just absolutely destroy the fabric because you don't see many sort of calls get given out anyway in the playoffs because the refs just allow the players to play through contact whatsoever without, unless of course it's an absolutely obvious foul call to give. But the hand checking is more than fine anyway because it's having no impact, Alex. If someone touches you in the hip, right, and it doesn't leave you, it doesn't sway you off balance or doesn't make you topple forward, then that's fine because the defensive player is in that guardable position where they're actually in sort of, should I say, with where they're guarding is they're not making the intentions of just, oh, we'll shove the play. What they're trying to do is hound and basically not allow the player to drive by them. So yeah, it might be a really good up. point. Just to interrupt, do you want to define hand-checking or should I? Just for listeners that didn't watch back in 2003 and don't know what, exactly what hand-checking is. I'm happy to do it if you don't want to. Yeah, I'll allow you to go ahead. Okay, on. so basically it's the use of your arms, not necessarily your hands, but your arms to, as a defender, corral and influence the offensive player's motion. Uh, so for example, you might see in lower leagues or in your rec leagues, I'm, I play center and I have an arm guard out with on defense. I'll be in a stance and have my arm bent to allow the attacker to come into me, but also to push back. That counts as hand checking. If you're uh, defending a drive coming towards, you might have your arm pushed into the offensive player's hip. You're not pushing them away from the play, but in a sense, you're kind of moving them out of the line by giving a force back. 
Um, they'll call the foul if it's like an overtly, like you've pushed someone out the way. But just by having that kind of, it's a balanced attack in, in all honesty. The defender is trying to push back slightly and corral into a different channel, a less favorable channel. So that's kind of what the definition of hand checking is now in whenever you play lower leagues. But go ahead, Yuri. And I just think they need to have that back one bit whatsoever because it just makes it so much more fairer for defenders. You even see right in games, Alex and Tom and Julian, where basically the player, the defensive player doesn't want to put their hands on the opposition player who they're guarding because the referee is just going to call it right away. It's almost just though, oh, we better not put our hands in the cookie jar right away because the refs just going to blow off blow their whistle and be like, oh, there's a foul right there for no valid reason. So we've got to get to that point, right? And if you watch games from maybe the 2011 playoffs or something to use that, for example, with Chicago-Miami or even the 2000 playoffs with the Knicks and Raptors, hand-checking was pretty damn prevalent back then, right? And you saw how physical, especially that Knicks-Raptors series was and how much they doubled Vince and all that. But, oh, wow, just... Please just bring that back to league because it'll make it so much fairer. And the thing is, right, it's not, as Tom said, it's not fun watching teams combine for 280, 285 points on any given night, seriously, and watching teams shoot 55 to 60% from the floor every single game. That's boring. You look at the field goal percentage numbers over the years, right? Two teams this season are shooting greater than 50%. I think it's OKC in Indiana who are shooting over 50%. And the lowest shooting team, I think, is Memphis or Portland at 43%. And all other teams are shooting between 46 to 48%. It's just so much of how offense has changed. But again, give more to defensive players an opportunity because that's where the whole fairer balance and it's more fairer competition anyway. All right, Jules, what but, about you? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Tom. No, it, I... I have to question though. The, the is the the reality is is that just because the defense has been given less of an advantage now with the rules, or is that just because the shooters have gotten better? Because you look at the players now, pretty much every team is putting out at least three guys who can shoot, and therefore they're going to end up generating open shots, and they're going to end up making them, and percentages are going to go up. I just I find it hard to you know think that we can get a defensive scheme or rules in place that are going to stop this because any given night. You know, most players in the league can at least hit two to three threes if they're open, and adding hand checking might not help that. And I, I just that's the thing, I that's why I, I came out with a rule outside of the court because I just I really couldn't think of anything that would actually help the defenders because I just think shooting is just too good now. I might have a, a solution to that, but I'll let Jules pitch in first. I, I was struggling as well with Tom. I, I really, I actually like Yuri's point with the, with the check, and I actually completely agree with Tom's as well. So I'm kind of sitting in this space and not really knowing. I actually thought the problem more lied with the free throws attempted. I saw this stat that came out this week where it said James Harden was the first player in history to average more free throw attempts and field goal attempts, something bizarre like that, which is just crazy. So I think, yeah, any way to, I suppose, stop players from drawing fouls and going to the line so easy. Again, I speak without knowing the numbers too well, but from my experience watching the games, I note that players just get to the basket way too easy. And those players that are really good at drawing fouls, Harden, uh, DeRozan, uh, even Shai Gilgis Alexander, he's very good at it. And it's just, I think there was a game against the Warriors where Jokic had like 26 free throws or the Denver Nuggets had 26 free throws in the last quarter. I think that was just a problem from a viewing perspective. So yeah, that that's my take on it. But I, I see what um, Tom's saying with the three-pointers and as we know, the traditional center is out of the league in, in some respect and everyone can shoot better. So that probably explains the field goal percentage going up. So yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. Yuri, jump in. Yeah, it was that crazy game, right, with the Lakers and Raptors, which Darko Ryakovich just absolutely that's busted right. the refs right. after that's for two right. yeah, for two minutes <laughs> and five nice seconds back on, on January 9, where yeah, the Lakers attempted 23 free throws in our final quarter. Yeah. I think the Raptors so only attempted two. Scotty Barnes, right? Scotty yeah. Barnes had so many driving attacks to the rim and drew contact and wasn't given the whistle in his favor. So yeah, that, that two-minute speech is still always, yeah, some somehow sticks this day. Even like what happened with Monty Williams yesterday, right, after, yes, that horrendous <laughs> final mm. sequence against the Knicks. <laughs> My idea is just to call up. the moving screens. If we just call the moving screens, I think players get less open, so they're more pressure to shoot the threes. You probably see the percentage drop down. Um, if we call our moving screens, if, can we just not call fouls if the offensive player also initiates contact like James Harden does 80% mm. of the time on his drives? Exactly. Uh, honestly, you pay one more referee, I think you can wipe out half of this across the league next season. Um, I don't... 
I don't necessarily agree that the scoring explosion is bad. Um, in the piece I'm writing, it kind of also... I've been looking into whether or not players are playing less defense now that they have to play more games with the player rest policy that come in in the offseason. So guys like LeBron James can still rest because of his age and minutes, but a lot of teams get fine increasing amounts of their rest players. So are they choosing to take possessions off on defense so that they can go at the end of games on back-to-backs, et cetera. I'm looking into that at the moment, but very interesting stuff. Yuri, last thoughts before we get to performance of the week. Yeah, just also with the offense as well too. And remember, I think, prior to 2020-21 season where the league cracked down on players who initiated offensive contact first to draw fouls yep. from the three-point line or even from the mid-range. And we see, of course, James Harden and Trey Young. And Steve Nash, remember the early part of that season, was really critical of the referees too. And James Harden not getting foul calls anymore. I think his free-throw free attempt, shall I say, went down from about 11 to 6 early on that season. And he was thinking... What's going on here, right? And it sort of it did get to that point where offensive players kept baiting the defensive player by leaning forward with their shoulder to draw contact ends. Mm. And it just doesn't look good. That's all. And that's the real again, it destroys the essence because every single time you see that happen, well you see, okay, it's fine if the offensive player does a ball fake, ball fake, pump fake, and the defender leaves their feet and Max contact with mm. them. That's fine one bit whatsoever. But not when you do this, right? Lean forward like this to draw contact. It, it just right. looks very forced. That's the issue. And that's why the league cracked down three years ago on that. And I think that's another part as well, which they've already addressed anyway. And thank goodness for that. But again, just to really sort of put it all together in context, that's the only other thing I could think of in terms of the defensive sort of strategy, if you want to put it that way, to change the context and basically bring back this whole sense of evenness amongst with the defense too, because maybe if they had their time two, three seasons, seasons ago to the league, they all have looked into it because the numbers from 2016, 17 basically showcase that offense was going to go up anyway. And maybe, and again, if they had to sort of really come to not their own senses, but just more in devising a strategy and really looking in depth into it. Thomas, performance of the week. Last segment, all yours. Go ahead. Just just quickly though, Alex, if uh, we do start calling moving screens, I think you might end Bam Adebayo's career quite early. Uh, <laughs> moving on quickly from that one. Um, I picked Jokic against the Warriors the other day. He was just incredible. 32 points, 16 rebounds, 16 assists, four steals, uh, plus 20. Um, and, you know, I think what really caught my attention was in the second quarter, the Nuggets were down 36 to 51 with about seven minutes left. Uh, and then they just sort of flipped a switch, the Nuggets, and they went on a 25-10 run to tie it at 61 apiece at halftime. And they outscored the Warriors by 16 in the second half. And, you know, yes, Denver haven't been as good this year as they were last year. Yes, they've lost their depth, but they're still the favorite because they've got this guy on their team. And they have this switch that they can flip on and off whenever they want. And come playoffs, you best believe that's, that switch is going to be flipped on throughout the four rounds. Yuri. Yeah, so I've got Miles Turner's 33 points against the Dallas Mavericks a couple of days ago too. And I think it's sort of been a really underrated season from Miles this season. 17, just over 17 points a game he's averaging this season. Of course, signed that two-year $60 million extension last season to for him to remain in Indianapolis. And after, of course, all the rumors that he was on the trading block and he's really found a nice niche as well this season. And we saw against the Mavericks too, the whole pick, pick and pop three. And you think... Alex, and could I probably put this to you as well? With him and Carl Anthony Towns, and they're very similar in sort of the same actions that the, both the Pacers and the Timberwolves run for both those guys, that their pick and pop threes are probably the most lethal out, out of the big men in the league, if that's not an understatement. Uh, I can draw some similarities. Cat's the better shooter. Miles can hit him. I'm not going to say he can't hit him. He's made a career out of it scoring when everyone wrote him off um let me have a look at what he's shooting from three this season not great 33 and a half percent but you know he hits him when i watch so but yeah they normally draw up those plays for him too and then he can of course go from the mid-range as well with that ball fake which we saw against the mavs on one play and there was a brilliant baseball pass at 94 feet outlet pass from tyrese halliburton to him which led to an easy dunk at the other end and it's that chemistry him and tyrese have built in the last couple of seasons, which is un- unstoppable when they're absolutely on a roll. And 
his whole role right within the team. I just think it goes under the radar completely, Alex, for mine too. That That's all I'm going to say because we saw when he first came into the league as a rookie in 2015-16. And of course, he was always known for his shot blocking and having to play under Paul George. And then when George left for OKC, his role sort of diminished a fair bit as well when Sabonis was there and sort of juggling that power forward and center comp- combination between the two because they didn't quite fit perfectly together on the floor. And then once, of course, that trade eventuated on February 8th of 2022 with, of course, bringing Halliburton from Sacramento and trading away DeMarcus to the Kings. It's definitely freed up Halliburton, should I say, Turner to play his preferred center position. And he's been reaping the rewards for the last couple of seasons. And I think just this season's just been an embodiment, I think, of what he's been able to accomplish and just the whole running the offense too when they need it through him as well because they've got so many lethal shooters there in Indiana that sort of just really, I think it really puts him under the radar to some context. Jules, uh, your performance of the week is going to make me very happy. Someone from the Raptors, you've seen, you've looked ahead. It was Scotty Barnes against the Pacers, the Battle of Siakam versus Barnes, the second time they've faced off against each other and Barnes came out on top and they won the game and Barnes had 21 points. 12 rebounds, 12 assists, and five blocks, if you don't mind. Unreal. I need you to just comment on your start of the week as well, because I've just lost my performance of the week. And it's I need to tell you about it, because I'm sure you all saw it. So just get to your start of the week, and we'll come back to me in 30 seconds. Okay, well, Tom, uh, Tom actually, it was Tom's performance of the week, but it's hard not to include this in the start of the week with the crazy line of 32 points from Jokic, two threes, 16 rebounds, 16 assists, four steals, and one block. So definitely... Did something in every category there. That's what we look for. I am vamping. I am pausing. I am trying to get the box score back up. My performance of the week, and I can't believe it was available. I get to choose fourth. Victor Wembenyama's five by five. Come on, guys. It's the first one, I think, since 2018 um, when current Phoenix Suns player Yusuf Nurkic had one. Um, I am. Yeah, I'm a sucker for the five by five. He actually, the game prior to having a five by five, he was one assist short. Um, so it's the yeah. youngest five by five of all time. I think he got it in the least amount of time. Going through the box score, it's 27 points, 10 rebounds, eight assists, five steals, five blocks in a tight loss against the Lakers in LA. My performance of the week. That's the end of the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Guys, do we have anything else to say? Or can we just go to sleep for the night? Big day in the NBA. Yeah, huge day, right? 11 games all up. I think there's only six six games tomorrow. Yesterday, there was only four games. And Friday, there's about not eight or nine. So it's been a bit of a mixture, right? How good has basketball been back fixture. after the All-Star break? I was directionalist during so that good. All-Star break. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's great to have you back, Jules. Thanks for coming back and joining us this week. We hope you're back every week for the rest of the season. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's show, five-star ratings, please and thank you. I've been Alexander J. Tom Dev is sitting in silence. Yuri Bilsic come from Perth. Jules back on the show. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Cheers, Actually, Alex, Alex, before we go, time. Jack would be remiss. Detroit Pistons on a one-game win streak. So congratulations, Jack. And it should be two, really, as well. It so. should be two, yeah. <laughs> Wait, are they no longer the worst team in the league? The Wizards are the worst team in the league now, right? Yeah, the oh, Wizards are yeah. the yeah. And the Nets will be there soon, I reckon. All right. We, we <laughs> better end the show. Thanks, guys. See you guys. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.